Welcome to a special bonus episode of Beyond the Zero. I'm your host Ben. Joining me today is Andre Forget. Andre is a writer. His debut novel, City of Pigs, is out now through Dundurn Press. Welcome to the show, Andre. Hey, good to be here. <laughs> you're joining me from Sheffield in the UK today, but you also spend a lot of time in Toronto and you've spent time in Russia. Where do you call home? Uh, home is Sheffield now, uh, I think, but, uh, but when I'm in Canada, Canada's home. Uh, wherever I am, that's, that's home. Okay, and so... At the moment in Sheffield, what are you up to there? Um, well, I'm uh, trying to meet other writers, trying to meet other literary people here, uh, which is uh, which is interesting. A lot of uh, the people I've met so far are actually translators, uh, which is which is fun. Uh, but I just moved here in April, so I'm still kind of finding my way into into the culture. Um, with Toronto, tell me about growing up there, and what are the kind of things that you like doing when you're in Toronto? Uh, Toronto, Toronto is a very interesting city to me, and I, I, I don't think that's just because it's a city I know very well. So w- when I was born in the 80s, I was born in Toronto. I mean, it, it, the city is almost unrecognizable when you see pictures of it then. Um, so in Canada in the 1970s, the, the Quebec passed a language law. And at that time, Montreal, the largest city in Quebec, was sort of the center of, of Canadian finance. It was the center of... Um, business in a lot of ways. And so with the passage of this language law and with the possibility that Quebec would completely separate from Canada, become its own country, there was a huge panic among the Canadian Anglos uh, in, in Quebec. And so they all moved down the highway to Toronto. Um, so ironically, the, the tallest building in Toronto that's not the CN Tower is the Bank of Montreal. And that really, to me, kind of symbolizes uh, that massive change that happened. And with that influx of people, Toronto became really the important Canadian city quite quickly. Uh, so the city that that my parents remember from the 80s is really not the city that exists now. Um, it's a, I mean, it's a hugely diverse city. So 50% of Can- uh, Torontonians are foreign-born, if I'm not mistaken. So that's foreign-born. So that's not just, you know, there's also tons of Canadians who've moved there from other, other parts of the country. So there's a real sense that the city is transformed and it's a different kind of place than it was which I mean creates a lot of dynamism which is exciting uh, but it also creates uh, you know stresses on the infrastructure it was not built to be the kind of city that it's becoming and a lot of that stuff is coming to to a head now and I mean I'd like to believe that the city will will kind of embrace the future and find a way to um, house all the people who live there (laughs) make it possible for people to actually have a life in that city, but uh, it's been very slow to accept that it's become a different kind of place. Um, so those tensions, I mean, I, I think as a writer, those tensions are always very interesting. We'll talk about that a bit later as well, because I think that comes up quite a lot in your novel. But before we get onto that, I want to talk to you just a little bit about your time in Russia. You told me before that your wife 
is from Russia and you spent some time there. But do you want to tell me a little bit more about your time there, especially, I guess, in the wake of like this whole, you know, Russian situation at present? Yeah. Well, I'm, we moved there in 2019 and we stayed there till I was there for a full year. So we, we were there when the pandemic hit, which was its own, its own thing. But um, my wife isn't ethnically Russian. She's part of a, a small minority nation called the Mari, who are actually the sort of the indigenous people of um, much of that, that part of uh, Russia and Western Russia. So Moskva, like Moscow, is actually not a Slavic word. It, it comes from the Finno-Ugric language, similar to the one that the Mari speak. So there's a deep, deep sense of identity among, among the Mari. And they live right next to a number of other small nations and some not so small nations like the Tatars. So the, the place we were in was not the kind of Russia that people think of when they think of Moscow or St. Petersburg. Uh, I mean, there was a lot of, you know, <laughs> like, you know, you see a lot of mosques. You'd see a lot of uh, out, out in the countryside, you'd see sacred groves. The Mari still practice their, their traditional religion, which is a very old religion. And, um, you know, they do sacrifices in these groves and that kind of thing. Uh, and so my wife is, um, her father is, is very involved in like language preservation and kind of Mari culture. Um, and is also very involved in helping to sort of work across cultural bounds, especially with um, recent immigrants from the countries in the Caucasus. So, you know, we go around with him and, and he take us to all sorts of cultural events and stuff like that. And it was just, uh, you know, it was a really eye-opening experience to see, you know, this country that I'd, I've read so many Russian novels. I've read so much about the country and none of what I'd read talks about the, the Russia that I, that I found myself in. Um, in the wake of the invasion, I mean, it was shocking. I mean, it was, it was absolutely shocking. I, and looking back on it, I wonder, you know, was I naive, you know, should I have been, as shocked as I was, but um, it's raised a lot of, I mean, it, you know, there's, there's no question that Putin is uh, an extremely dangerous man uh, to the Ukrainians, especially, but also to his own people um, and specifically to a lot of the minority cultures within Russia. Um, a lot of the soldiers who are fighting in the Russian army right now are not ethnically Russian. They're uh, a lot of them are Dagestanis and other people from, from the Caucasus. So having that experience of living in that part of Russia really, uh, it was strange to watch the, the, the narrative of the war develop here in the West because um, there's just a huge part of Russian history that I think a lot of Westerners don't really know about. And so Ukraine, you know, the, the idea that that this is an imperialistic war against Ukraine. I mean, it is, absolutely it is. But the whole country is, you know, is an empire. And there are all of these smaller nations that, that really probably, I mean, it would be very difficult for them to have states. They're landlocked. They've got a few hundred thousand people. So there's a, to me, my thinking has, has kept, kept going to this question of, well, Nations and states, I mean, it's a very neat idea. And, and I think where, where nations can have states, that's a good thing, as in the case of Ukraine, and I would say also in the case of countries like Kurdistan. But it's not 
uh, it's not a universally applicable model. Um, and I am very interested in these examples of, of nations that would struggle to have states. Uh, and, you know, and Russia, Russia is very paradoxical in that way and defies some of our, our Western categories. Yeah, I, I hope a... I haven't left anyone with the impression that I'm <laughs> in any way uh, in any way defending uh, that terrible man and his uh, terrible project in Ukraine. I think it's very fascinating because I know quite a lot of people from, you know, from the Ukraine and, and Russia. And like the, that is one of the things that I think comes up from what you're saying as well is the extreme diversity that is in Russia. Like we do have, you know, hundreds of different language groups. We have different ethnic groups. We have um, a whole lot of different people there. And it's, you know, I guess from an outsider's perspective, we do see it as a kind of homogenous block sometimes of, you know, of Russian-speaking people. But, yeah, I guess it's not really the case, is it? No, but uh, but I think that's the case in a lot of places. You know, the world is just much more nuanced <laughs> and complicated than, um, than, it, than we could really comprehend. Yeah. Before we get into your novel, City of Pigs, do you want to tell us about a bit of your background and how you got into writing? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think in, in some ways my, my path was the traditional one. You know, I read a lot as a kid. Uh, I come from a pretty literary family. Uh, my parents were both big readers. And I uh, did English literature at university, and then I did a master's in English. Um, and then I, you know, I decided I wanted to try my own hand at it. But I think I, I started writing, the stuff I started writing seriously was, was criticism, was reviews and essays, which I really started doing about 10 years ago now. So I think in Toronto, uh, people who, had, who, who know me would have known me as a, as a critic and as an editor. Um, and I didn't really publish short fiction. So, so no one really read my fiction before this novel came out. because I'm not really a short story writer. I don't see myself that way. Um, yeah, so, so I spent years really trying to figure out how to write a good review, how to write a good literary essay. And while I was doing that, I was also kind of trying to figure out how to write fiction. Um, but I started with, yeah, with the criticism. Okay, interesting. Well, we'll move on to City of Pigs. Alexander is your protagonist. He's a failed musician. He's moved from Montreal to Toronto and ends up working as a journalist and ends up investigating the local art scene, the price of real estate, and a project to create a huge underwater organ in the waters of Halifax Harbour. Do you want to tell us a bit more about Alexander and the setup of the novel? Alexander is, um, he's a failed musician, but he's a failed musician who's sort of happy that he's a failed musician. Um, I don't think he's he was cut out for a uh, for success in in anything. Uh, yeah, so so he starts the novel disillusioned and very self consciously disillusioned. He's in his probably mid twenties, I think, um, and like a lot of people in their mid twenties, like there's a kind of I think there's a almost a pleasure in disillusionment. This this feeling that you've seen through you've seen through the facade. You're, you're, you're wise to the bullshit. Uh, and that's very much how he is for most of the novel, I think. So he comes to Toronto kind of uh, very self-consciously trying to sell out uh, and just make money and, and kind of have a, have a comfortable life. 
that doesn't really work out for him because he's uh, not really, like I said, not really cut out for success. And through a, through a series of encounters, he, he does get pulled back into music, but this time writing about it rather than, rather than performing it. And uh, the novel is structured in, in these four parts. The first part has him kind of moving to Toronto and getting into, um, getting back into music and getting pulled back into music. And he starts to investigate this kind of series of underground concerts. And in the second part, he's gotten a job, his writing has gotten him a job at this um, very small classical music magazine where he's the only staff writer. And they send him to Halifax to cover this hydroorganin, this underwater organ that's being built in Halifax. Um, and then the third part, he's covering an opera written by an old rival of his. Uh, and then in the final part, uh, the final part kind of ties, or is, I, I think ties a lot of these kind of storylines together. Yeah, he he's a really interesting character and he is quite fascinating the way he travels through these art scenes in Toronto. His failure at the beginning of the novel is actually quite, that's uh, quite sad, but it's also quite funny. Um, and there is quite a lot of humour within the book. But one of the things uh, that you bring up in the book is that world of art, like especially avant-garde uh, avant art, that uh, crosses over into the world of like corporate culture and money-making. And this seems to happen in big cities especially. Do you want to tell us a bit more about your experience or your thoughts about this? Well, when I moved to Toronto, um, one of the first jobs I had, which I only had for two weeks because I was so bad at it, was trying to sell subscriptions for the Toronto Symphony Orchestra. So I would go to this building downtown right across from the, the big concert hall and I would, you know, get into the, into the booth and try to make phone calls and try to get people to, you know, buy season tickets or, or whatever. And it really, you know, it was really shocking to see how the company that was, I mean, because of course the symphony outsourced it to someone who outsourced it to someone and that someone was us. And the way that the guy who was managing our unit talked about it was, you know, if you can sell them on the music, great, but really try to sell them on like a high subscription where they get to go to this, I guess there's a lounge in the concert hall that, you know, VIPs can go to and, and you know, the people in the lounge are wheelers and dealers. And so that was like actually part of the pitch to funders was give us a certain amount of money and you would get access to this VIP room where who knows, like maybe some rich guy, you can talk to him. It was like literally that, that, uh, that crude. Uh, so that first experience really stuck with me. Um, and in Canada, I mean, we were talking earlier about the similarity in, in Canada and Australia in this regard, you know, the, uh, the amount of public money and private money that is made available to the arts, it's not insubstantial, but it's not, it's not, um, it's not about strings. Uh, not, money never is. And there's a, there's a, an interesting way in which art becomes a kind of um, almost a money laundering scheme or a reputation laundering scheme, I should say, where, you know, you become a philanthropist, you give a, you know, a bunch of money to the symphony or to, to start a literary prize or something like that. And, you know, look at you, you're, you're this great, lovely philanthropist, but, you know, they're not doing it because they're, they're, you know, they're obviously doing it for a reason. Right. And, uh, I think some of them maybe really do love art, but it's never just that simple. And so creating art in those contexts and thinking about art in those contexts is quite difficult, I think, because on one hand, 
uh, as an artist, you know, I'm, I'm aware that um, people don't buy novels like they used to. There was this period of time that lasted, I don't know, maybe a hundred, hundred years in the English speaking world uh, between maybe the 1840s, maybe a bit more than hundred years, 1840s to 1990s, maybe where the market was such that you could really become a celebrity as a writer and you could, you could sell, um, you could sell literature as a product and make a profit. Uh, that's not really the world that we're mostly living in anymore. There are people who are still able to do that, but there are very few of them uh, comparatively. And that whole sort of B list of people who could make enough to, to, to sort of make a living off of being novelists, which was never very large, but existed. I think that's been pretty, pretty completely wiped out. So now if you want to be an artist and you want to survive off of your art, um, which to some extent you need to do, especially as you get older and you start to realize that every hour you spend working on your novel is an hour that you're not spending with your family or, you know, your job. Um, you know, it becomes kind of hard to, to say no to people who are saying to you, here's a bunch of money to pursue your, your interests. Even if you're aware that that money's not necessarily coming from a, a clean uh, or innocent place. So I, I, I felt that that was not something that was really talked about in a lot of the literature I was reading. I, I'm not saying it wasn't talked about, but I, what I encountered was a lot of sort of bohemian celebration of the kind of down and out life, you know, not, you know, working at a bar and kind of doing your art, having your art for your life. There was, there was plenty of that. Um, and then there was a lot of talk about, you know, the, the beautiful, wonderful, deep thoughts that we're having in fiction or in music. And, and there seems, it seems to me <laughs> that there was a huge, piece that was missing that was maybe a little bit less uh, flattering to to working artists um, than the celebration of bohemia or the kind of um, economics free uh, contemplation of the sublime yeah I completely see how you feel that I think it's very much the same here in Melbourne where they pay money for weird statues in public squares and things like that. And I think a lot of it is kind of art, not for art's sake, but art for, you know, for corporate money and for making um, politicians look good sometimes. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. In the book, we have kind of, I guess, a really good example of that whole thing where uh, we have an underwater organ, which is such a great motif in the book. And... When I read this in the book, I went down a Google rabbit hole researching the hydroorganon, which of course doesn't actually exist in any real sense. I found a few articles, but not too many. And um, I, I was just fascinated by this whole motif and the whole idea of this, this concept of having an organ below water that plays music to people when they're in scuba gear or whatever it is. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the backstory of writing this part of the novel and that other project you were working on at the time that you wrote that part of the book? Well, the story, uh, the story begins because a good friend of mine uh, who's a composer and an organist named Joel Peters um, started a collaborative arts group based in Montreal. And he called me up one day and he said, you know, we, we, we are doing this concert. We kind of want there to be a, a fiction tie in. They were, they're really big on that of having other art kind of 
participate in music. And so he said, do you want to write a, you know, a short story about an underwater organ? And I think he had in mind something kind of Kafka-esque, you know, something like short um, or, or Borges or something like that. And I wrote, I just, I, I, I thought, well, this is too good to not write about. This is too much fun. So I, you know, I went to a bar and I wrote, I wrote the story in like two nights. It was really quick. I've never written anything that quickly. And uh, I, it was considerably longer than, than what he wanted, I think. Um, but he, he really liked it. And so they built this concert around the idea of this underwater organ. And in early 2018, we put it on in Montreal. And so the setup was, was kind of interesting. It was in this church that we were able to get for, for very cheap. And uh, there were a lot of, there was like a kind of a light show, a lot of blue light. Uh, and we had some um, mimes kind of acting out scuba stuff uh, in scuba gear in, in the front of this church. And then they were playing these, these pieces, which I love. I mean, their, their music's really good. And in the program, we had taken an excerpt from the story and we presented this concert as it's the 25th anniversary of the first of these underwater organs. And we're honoring that by putting on this concert of music that's sort of inspired by this idea. So we did the whole thing straight as if this was a real thing. Um, and of course, afterwards, people came up to us and said, wow, you know, I'd never heard of this. Like, you know, why isn't this a bigger story? And they're like, well, you know, cause it's made up. <laughs> None of this is true. Um, so that's, that's kind of how the story got written. But the, in a deeper sense, the backstory was just many conversations Joel and I have been having about uh, the concept of performance, the concept of creating, creating art in a space that people witness. And he had, at that time had been dealing with a lot of maybe, I don't know, doubt or uncertainty about, you know, you, you sit down at the organ, you play this, you know, book a piece or something like that. And there's these people there and they're listening and like, what's happening for them? What's happening in this experience? Are they swept away by the music? Are they just coming in because, you know, it's something to do and they're, they're lonely. Are they thinking about all the things they need to do over the weekend? And it's just kind of a place to sit and contemplate. And uh, I think that's a really interesting paradox and especially an interesting paradox in something like classical music, which is traditionally uh, received by a very quiet audience sitting in chairs. It's not like a rock concert where you sort of know if things are not going well, right? If, if you're on stage and you're playing songs and people are supposed to be dancing, they're not dancing. Like that's a that's a problem. Um, but with classical music, there there isn't that in, that feedback, that immediate feedback. You don't have that sense. And so th this idea of an underwater organ was an idea of is the performance just this spectacle that people show up for because it's a spectacle that they can show up for, or is there something that's actually sort of happening inside them as they participate in this art as, as audience members. And so this idea in the story that some people who go down to see these underwater organs say they hear music, say they hear this incredible music, and other people, the majority, sort of go down and say, uh, it looks nice, fascinating, but I didn't really hear anything. Uh, yeah, so the story was, I think, engaged with that idea. And I, I think it's a, it's an idea that I think about a lot as a writer, because, of course, as writers, we don't even have a, an audience in front of us. Um, you know, we, we send our books out into the world and you know, <laughs> often don't really get a lot of feedback about what this meant to another person. Um, and sometimes the feedback that one does get is, is 
kind of unhelpful, you know. I didn't really like this character. It's not it's like, what do you do with that? <laughs> you, know? you weren't supposed to like them, right? Uh, I don't know what to tell you. It's it's a bit like that paradox where if a tree falls in the woods kind of thing, like if an underwater organ plays music, does anyone hear it? I want to ask you as well about your, I guess, your interest in music because that seems to come up quite a lot within this book. Do you have like a, a previous interest in music, especially classical music? Yeah, music was always a big thing uh, for me. I, I learned, I mean, I learned to play guitar when I was quite young and my father is very musical. So, it, you know, when we were growing up, you know, we, we were always listening to just the everything. You know, it was like, he, you know, Thelonious Monk. I mean, he was really into bebop for a while um, and loved choral music, uh, loved a lot of 18th century stuff. But it just had very broad taste, you know. And um, so it was always present. And it was always obvious to me that, like, music was a big part of life and that uh, there was something in music that's not just kind of, aesthetic experience it's a way of understanding the world like music is a kind of like all of the arts is like an access point into reality in some way and because it's a nonverbal access point especially in the case of um a lot of classical music uh and and a lot of jazz um i just was drawn to it when i started writing as a i think it's it's kind of the art that's the furthest away from the art that i practice which is all about words, which is all about meaning Right, you can't avoid this, the fact that meanings bear bear out of sentences. Right, that um, you can't write an abstract. You you actually can't really write an abstract sentence. <laughs> like it always has has to have these kind of concrete words that have histories and that have layers of meaning. Uh, and and a sequence of notes to me was just you know how do you how do you talk about that? How do you talk about what those things mean? Um, and there is a there's an extensive vocabulary, and I was familiar with a lot of it, you know, being around classical musicians and knowing a lot of people who work as classical musicians. So I, I include a lot of that kind of vocabulary of musicology in the novel, but there's something in the music that always exceeds it, and and that's I think what I'm most interested in as a as an artist is is the the things that exceed meaning, the things that exceed our ability to. Um, enclose them uh, in words. I want to ask you about what you're working on at the moment in terms of your own writing and also your other projects that you're editing or doing other things with. Well, I just finished uh, the first draft of a book about propaganda um, that, I mean, it's a short, it's a short book. It's supposed to be sort of a pamphlet. Um, I'm not sure what the state of it is. I, I was contracted to do it by a publisher. I'm still not sure where it stands with them, but um that that project came out of just really the last seven years now um the way that uh most things in culture have been enlisted um to uh to be engaged in in politics and i think you know i i think things are always products of politics things are always always have a political dimension um, but there are times in in culture and history where that political dimension becomes overwhelmingly important. And we're living through one of those times, I think, in the English-speaking world. And, uh, and there was, in the 30s, it was very similar. You know, if you read a lot of, I mean, it's, it's fascinating to go back and read, say, Edmund Wilson's book reviews from the 30s. Um, 
and just how much of what he's talking about is like factional politics, <laughs> you know, Marxists reviewing each other's books and having these arguments. And like, it's fascinating. Like so much of that has just been completely memorable. You know, what's a great novel written in the 30s? It, I actually have to think. <laughs> in the 20s, great, I can give you, you know, I can give you five, right? But in the 30s, like there's this kind of thing that happens in art where the political things that are happening in the world just attain a gravity that sucks everything else in. And I think we're, we're experiencing that again. I, I tend not to think that it's something that anyone's in control of. I mean, there is a, a kind of cultural line that says, oh, you know, we used to be more open to just expression and less didactic. And, and now, you know, things have, have all been sucked into politics. And I, I think, I think a, like a lot of human processes, no one sort of woke up in the morning and decided to do that. It just, sometimes there's this kind of, these things that happen in culture where, where things shift and there are these generational shifts. And uh, I see it as being a bit like a, like a monsoon, you know, it's like no one's, no one's in charge of this thing. It's just happening and now we, we kind of have to live with it. And that's usually for most, the vast majority of human people, the vast majority history, we've just been living with monsoons. You know, we've been living with these large forces far beyond our control and we're trying to find a way to, to survive in them. So the idea of propaganda was really interesting to me because the word itself is so overdetermined and propaganda gets used to talk about so many different things and almost always pejoratively. It's always like, you know, if something is propaganda, it's bad. That's, that's usually the subtext. And to me, it just seemed like, first of all, propaganda seems pretty necessary to organize it a complex society of millions of people, you need some sort of messaging that helps people understand what's going on and, and what precautions they should take in the global pandemic, for example, or, you know, in this country right now, you know, we're, we're facing these kind of skyrocketing bills, right? And um, part of the anxiety is that there, there just doesn't seem to be anyone in charge, right? And there doesn't seem to be any any, any coalescing around an alternative message, um, the kind that uh, maybe a more progressive or left-wing propaganda could provide. I think that's still being sorted out. So it seems to me that propaganda is necessary, but it's also necessary to make a distinction between propaganda and other types of things. That's not a taxonomical distinction because I think Paradise Lost is a work of propaganda, but it's a work of propaganda that is also many other things. And we don't just need to talk about how Paradise Lost is propaganda. We can also talk about how it's other, other things. Uh, and that kind of, so the book is basically arguing for why, especially in the case of art, we need to accept the importance of propaganda and by accepting it, be able to be a little bit more sane about what propaganda can and cannot do. And I think if your little literary novel is not actively propagandizing, it's probably not the end of the world because it's probably not being read by enough people that it would shift the needle on anything, you know? Um, I'm also, I'm cooking up a couple of, I've got a couple of novels on the go as well right now. Um, and I'm, I'm trying to sort of, I'm, I'm working on both of them. I'm trying to see which one kind of pulls ahead as the, uh, as the, the one I'm, I'm going to put most of my energy into. But um, yeah, but I mean, Unsurprisingly, they're both related to these kinds of questions about the relationship of culture to 
greater world. With working on novels, like I know I read that you had worked on a novel for quite a while and and I guess it hadn't come to fruition. Um, what's your process working uh, on something like a novel? Because they are obviously very time consuming. Is it something that you, do you put it away once you get to a certain point or like how do you, how do you actually work on it and decide what you're going to go forward with? That's a good question. Uh, I, I think if I had a process, I might be more prolific. <laughs> uh, and I mean, you know, I've, I've done four international moves in four years and that, that sucks up a lot of time. Uh, and, you know, I, I just haven't been in a place where I've been able to actually have some sort of organized way of living, which hopefully is changing now. But I, I think um, when I most, when I feel best as a writer is when I just sort of write a first draft. You know, my, my tendency, I think it's a common one, is you write a page and then you endlessly go back over that page and tweak things and, and try to get it just right. Um, or you jump ahead and you write another section. Uh, and I, I, I'm with, with both of these projects, I'm trying to just sit down with the document and write, you know, write a thousand words and not tinker with anything, just write the next thousand words and then write the next thousand words after that. Um, and I think there's something in the kind of discipline about that that I find at this point in my life very exciting, you know, that I'm trying to overcome this idea that I'm creating art and I'm communing with some sort of world spirit or something like, like no, it's a job, you know, you're putting words in front of each other and you're, you're lining up scenes and images and approaching it as a job, just as work, as um it doesn't need to be perfect the first time. It doesn't need to be um, the final form immediately. Just work at it and then you come back. And when it's done, you kind of go back and you edit it again. And you know, I find that very liberating. And a lot of my favorite writers, um, you know, people like Dickens, Gorky, you know, they're, they're cranking out literature at an extraordinary clip, you know, and we can look back on it and say, well, you know, they weren't all hits, you know. Uh, there are pages and pages and pages of Dickens that could be cut, right? But I think there's something in that lack of preciousness uh, that I find uh, really compelling when I'm trying to introduce into my own practice. Good advice. All right, uh, let's move on to your gateway books. What were some of the books that opened the world of literature for you? Yeah, this is one of my favorite segments in your podcast because it's just so interesting to hear what, uh, what people what people choose I, I think for me i was i was thinking about this uh, before the call and I, I think i can answer it in in a single you know kind of a single set of texts which is the arthuriad you know the um largely medieval stories that that uh, sort of tell the, the the legends of king arthur which i was introduced to very young loved it from the get-go and i think that there there's Two things that have been profoundly influential about about those texts, and the first one is just the um, you know the stories. Like the Arthurian stories are really about decline and collapse, um, moral decline, uh, decline of the political order, and there's a, a, a huge sense of um, that the origins of decline are are sowed. In, in, in the beginning, right? That, that uh, I, I think there's something very interestingly Marxist about that to me. 
although of course they're pre-modern texts. Like there's this idea that that the Arthurian kind of world uh, is set up self-consciously around a kind of political order um, based on these kind of knights who will, um, instead of just endlessly killing each other, that the, their violence will be contained and they'll be contained in these kind of tournaments and they'll also be contained by sending the knights out um, to kind of use the violence to build a, a better order at home. And that kind of paradox um, that, that you're trying to channel that violence ends up just completely destroying the entire political order. So I really love that. Uh, I also love that there really isn't a definitive version. You know, there's no, this is the original Arthur story. Um, there's a, just a, a slow accrual over centuries of material that eventually becomes codified in a few influential books. But I, I just love that. I, I love the idea of a kind of shared world that writers are kind of building together over a long period of time. And that instead of, I mean, there's a, a critic that I read years and years ago, whose name I forget, um, was talking about how in the Middle Ages, you didn't write criticism of art, you just rewrote the story the way you wanted to rewrite it. So if you thought this part of the, the Arthur story is weak, you just changed it. You just introduced something else to happen at that point. Um, and I love that. I love the creativity of that. I love the freedom of that. And I think a lot of the modern and postmodern writers I like are engaged in a similar kind of play with inherited stories. So yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of books that, that I really love, but I think those texts are really kind of the foundation for me. What books are you currently reading or have you recently enjoyed or you're looking forward to this year? So I just finished, last night I just finished uh, Reclaim by Monica Ali, uh, which came out a long time ago. It was a big big book when it came out in the year, uh, early 2000s, I guess. And it was good. I, I, I enjoyed reading it. The ending is incredibly optimistic. And I was lying in bed last night, you know, my wife is asleep and I've just finished this book. I'm thinking like, my God, I cannot imagine a literary novel ending this optimistically. <laughs> it's, it's inconceivable that a novel written now would have that kind of optimism at the end. Uh, and it, it's, I, I, you know, I think in some way, I mean, you could criticize it for being a little too optimistic, a little too rosy, but I think it works. And I think it's just an example of, you know, the, the time, the time that a text is created just influences its perception to such a degree, influences what's possible, influences the kinds of, the kinds of endings you can have. Um, I'm also reading uh, Maxim Gorky's uh, big tour de force, um, sort of his final, final novel, which is four volumes. It's incredibly long and it's called The Life of Queen Samgin. So Gorky's a, a writer who I, I'm endlessly fascinated by. And he, of course, he starts in the 1890s in Russia, becomes a very prominent revolutionary, is jailed for a little while after the 1905 revolution. Uh, there's a huge outcry, international outcry, so he gets released. He goes to New York to try and raise money for the revolution. But he brings his, his mistress. Uh, and he, so he has this mistress, um, and his wife is cool with it. Like, so they have this kind of poly thing going on. Uh, so he goes to New York with his mistress and he's trying to raise money. And the New Yorkers are just so shocked by this idea that this revolutionary is, you know, is cheating on his wife that he gets thrown out of polite society, basically. Um, 
and have to, <laughs> have to, you know, crawl back home, having raised almost no money. Um, and then he goes into exile uh, with Lenin, uh, and then he comes back to Russia. Uh, he's there for the revolution. He's very quickly shocked and appalled by the way that the Bolsheviks are proceeding, and uh, basically is forced into exile again. And that's where he starts writing this, this magnum opus, which is really this kind of generational story about the revolution. Um, and it's, Gorky's not the flashiest stylist, and Nabokov has some very harsh words for him that were, I think, a little unfair, but he's not, uh, I mean, he's not, you know, Tolstoy. Um, but I think he's just, uh, he's just a really interesting, he's an interesting writer because he's constantly trying to grapple with these big questions. And he's constantly changing his mind and getting disillusioned with things. And it's, it's, it's interesting reading, but it's, my God, it's long. It's like four volumes and each of the volumes is like 400 pages long. And they're almost impossible to get because they went out of print uh, in the thirties. So I had to like hunt down these old copies, but it's, it's been fun. It's been good summer reading. We'll take a quick break here on Beyond the Zero and come back with Andre's top 10. This episode is brought to you by the new Toyota iSlam, with room for the whole militia and still space for a rocket launcher in the back. Available now at Kabul Toyota. We're back on Beyond the Zero. It's time for Andre's Top 10. In no particular order. Uh, also, I should add a caveat. I I love listening to this section of your podcast because it's a great recommendation. You know, it's great recommendations. Um, I would agree with a lot of uh, what previous guests have chosen. Um, I mean, Bolaño, obviously huge. Ulysses. Uh, so I'm not gonna. I, you know, I, I I'm gonna sort of gear it more towards you know my top ten books that I think are superb and that I really love that are also maybe just a little bit kind of underrated or, 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 or less read than they could be. Um, so number one in that category for me would be at Swim Two Birds by Flann O'Brien, uh, which is just stunning. I don't know if you've read it, but- I've got it right uh, <laughs> Yeah, you've got it right there. Yeah, yeah I've got the same edition. <laughs> yeah, so it's just so fucking good, you know? Mm-hmm. And the, the gymnastics he's pulling with like all of these kind of, uh, you know, the author is coming through, the author is lying in bed, chewing a mouthful of bread and thinking about these characters who are thinking about characters and just the layers and just, he's having so much fun with it. He's just having a great time and uh, playing around with language. He's playing around with the language of um, the myths. He's playing around with the language of the bourgeoisie. I mean, he's doing, I don't know. I always feel, you know, I, I know that Joyce had a sense of humor, uh, Obviously, he had a sense of humor, but I feel like that Swim Two Birds is doing something similar to Ulysses, but it's just way less reverent, and it, he's just having, it feels more fun to me, yeah. uh, more energetic, yeah. Uh, number two is The Pegnet Junction by Mavis Gallant. Um, Gallant, uh, Canadian, um, 
moved to France in the 40s and lived there for the rest of her life, which is a very long life, and really excelled at short stories. Uh, was her main thing. She was a big New Yorker writer, she, so she was in that kind of stable in the 60s and 70s. Was also a reporter. Uh, Pegat's Junction, I think, is her best. Uh, people might disagree with that, but I think Pegnitz Junction for me is the best because it's this journey through post-fascist Europe um, and all of the stories are in some way kind of rooted in either in Germany or uh, or in, in Switzerland or France, but it's this kind of wrestling with you know the extraordinary violence and destruction and viciousness of the Second World War and the fact that all of these kind of bourgeois people in the 60s are, are like, they were there, <laughs> they were involved, right? And their children are starting to get a sense for that. And it, it just, I don't know. It, I mean, her style is incredible. Like she's an incredibly masterful writer, but that book in particular, I think really marries that style with a, just a deep sense of, of gravity. Uh, but I think uh, I think she does really well. Um, number three is The Polished Hoe by Austin Clark. Um, Clark's a writer who's quite well-known in Canada and uh, I think also quite well-known in Barbados. Uh, he's from Barbados, moves to Canada in the 50s and um, just becomes, you know, I mean, he becomes like, an institution like he's writing for all the newspapers he's churning out novels uh he helps to set up the first black studies department at yale then gets sick of doing that and goes to run the public broadcaster in barbados gets chased out of barbados because he's just too unpopular with the people he he uh he's managing and all the all the while he's just writing these these great novels and he's a fascinating writer because he really takes the the heritage of modernism seriously and over the course of his career he becomes i think more and more of a modernist and uh the polished toe he publishes in i guess the early 2000s and it's this story it's set in a single night it's quite a long book but it's set in a single night in barbados and it's this woman who's just murdered a man uh and she goes to the police station to turn herself in and the whole novel is her conversation with the police sergeant, who's a very old friend of hers. And he uses that kind of modernist stream of consciousness style to kind of tease out this whole history of this woman's life. And in a way, I mean, it's the history of the Caribbean in a sense, like the, the, the um, you know, the violence of the, the plantations and so forth, but it's just gorgeous. I mean, the, the language is beautiful. Um, and, you know, in the early 2000s, like I, I can't think of too many other books at that time that were still doing the modernist Still committed to that kind of project of difficult, difficult, heavy literature um, with the, the elaborate style and all of that. Uh, next one, I think we're at number four now. Uh, Orhan Thomas, The Museum of Innocence. Um, there's a lot of Thomas novels that could be on this list. Uh, when I was 22, I moved to Turkey for a year. I was living in Istanbul, and that's when I got into Thomas. Um, and The Museum of Innocence. I don't think it's his best novel, but I think it's the one that I love the most. Um, it's about this guy falls in love uh, with a distant cousin. She, you know, he's engaged to be married. She leaves him. Uh, 
uh, his lover leaves him because he's engaged to be married. And he spends years like trying to find her again. And he finds her and she's married someone else. But he keeps going over to her house and like having dinner with her family and watching television every night for years and years and years. And he starts stealing these little things that she's touched. So like her cigarette butts or he'll steal like the porcelain cap on top of the television or whatever it is. And um, the novel is him giving you a tour of a museum he built with all of these little things he's stolen. Uh, and it's just, I mean, it's deeply twisted and disturbing in a certain sense, but it's a really beautiful, beautiful book. But I think the thing I love most about it is after publishing this book, he goes, buys the, the house that appears in the novel, he buys it, then he turns it into the Museum of Innocence that has all of the objects he lists in the novel. And it's there, you can go and see. And it's just like, that's <laughs> just such a, weird obsessive thing to do um which uh which appeals to me greatly uh the next book is not a novel but i think does a lot of things that a novel does and that's black lamb gray falcon by rebecca west um which is a travelogue of her uh, of this long trip she took through the balkans in the 30s and i think it's just no, I don't think I've really read too many other books that make an entire region come alive in that way. And like Tolstoy, you know, she's she's very good. She's very good at painting scenes. She's very good at creating characters. She's very good at sort of taking you into a, a fully furnished world. But she also has this Tolstoyan urge to like jump in and start ranting at you. And I find that incredibly charming. I think it's my favorite thing about Tolstoy is his his rant. Like this, I don't. There's something about the the intellectual energy of it um, that gives the the work another dimension. Uh, and Black Lamb and Gray Falcon. I mean, it's like super long, but I think a uh, few things I've read are as worth the energy. Um, then uh, I've got one of your your paisanos, um, Shirley Hazard. With Transit of Venus. Um, I mean, what's there to say? It's just the prose is stunning. The, I mean, what she does at the ending uh, with this kind of trick ending is uh, is really good. And I just felt, you know, I mean, as somebody from a Commonwealth country, it it really captures something about the kind of Commonwealth British Commonwealth mindset. Yeah. So my next next up is uh, Gorky with uh, Mother which is, you know, it's probably the best revolutionary novel ever written, um, I think. Uh, and it's also just a really weird book because it's all told from, like the main character is this like old woman um, and her son becomes a sort of steely-eyed Bolshevik type. Um, but the whole novel is about how she becomes a revolutionary. <laughs> so... There's like all these like people, like his circle is like showing up at her house and they're constantly getting arrested and they're distributing leaflets to strikers and that kind of thing. But I think it's um, this is what makes Gorky a good novelist. And I think the reason why he should still be read is that he he takes this kind of he's always taking this kind of sideways view. Uh, and wherever the big action is, you know, wherever the, the protagonist of history, and this is a guy who hung out with the protagonist of history, um, he's just not interested in them. Like they're they're not interesting people to him. 
he's interested in losers. He's interested in sort of, I mean, you could say the common folk, but it's not that. I mean, he's interested in people who are tortured and ambivalent and not, um, not believers, you know, like, and a lot of the characters in his, in his novels from that, that period where the revolution is really starting to get its legs under it. They're, I mean, he writes this great book about someone who comes to the revolution after many years of you know, uh, depression and um, living the hard life and sort of has this mystic experience at the end of that novel. And the next novel he writes is about a police informant. <laughs> it's about a guy who comes from the same circumstances, joins the other side, becomes a police informant. And like he, he has this incredible attention to the way that ordinary people are experiencing these big historic moments. And Mother, I mean, Mother just does it, does it so well. I mean, it's, it, again, it's hard to find. The next one is Sleepless Nights by uh, Elizabeth Hardwick, um, which I think, have, have you read it? Have you come across it? I haven't read it. I've, I've heard of it. I haven't read it. Yeah, NYRB put it or re-released it, which is a copy that I have. And uh, really, you know, I, I, I'm very ambivalent about autofiction. Um, I think it has done some, like people have done really interesting things with autofiction. But I think Sleepless Nights is, is one of the, the peaks. Um, and it's very short, but she just sort of takes you through the life of this character who has a life. I think it's, it's very similar to, to, her own, to her own life. But it's not, uh, it, I, I think there, there are large things that she sort of, you know, leaves out of her life. But it, she, it's autofiction, but she's really not, she's not the kind of primary point of interest, I think. Like she's interested in the other people. She's interested in these people that she's meeting. And so the, she's got these kind of chapters on, you know, there's this, um, she, she goes to live in Holland for a while and there's this Dutch professor and his like circle of Dutch intellectuals. And she's got this huge section on these, on these Dutch intellectuals who are all just losers. Like they're, they're petty, you know, they've got some, some, some good sides and good qualities, but, you know, they're they're just ordinary lives, uh, and she's just observing them with this incredible, not un, she's not unsympathetic, but there's this incredible uh, clarity that that is quite shocking uh, in its ability to kind of strip um, strip the illusions that these people live with from them. Um, and I, I think you know it's a type of literature that I'm very interested in. These, these books where the main character is just an observer and what's happening is, is their observation of other people. And when it's, when it's auto-fictional and when you have a real sense that this author is talking about people she knew, um, it's, it's, really, it's really powerful. I mean, I think it's one of the criticisms that can be made of my novel, which is that the main character doesn't really do anything. Um, I mean, he's a passive observer for, for most of the book. Um, which I, which was intentional, and which at, at the end I tried to kind of do something with that. But I, I, I love the passive observer. You know, I, I think it's, I think there's something, there's something about observation that is just, you know, essential to what writing is. Um, when authors make that part of the text, I, I really go for it. Yeah. So, so the next one is uh, um, the Foundation Pit by Andre Pasona, who's been sort of 
there's been some more interest in him recently. Uh, he's a Soviet writer um, during the worst time to be a Soviet writer in the 30s. And uh, The Foundation Pit is this incredible novel about, very short, but it's about this uh, crew that's, that's trying to build like um, like an edifice. Um, I think it's like a, a, a new collective farm or something like that. And these workers are just out there trying to build this project. And they're all uneducated. You know, they don't really know what's going on. They sort of have a vague sense for what the revolution is about. But they're using the kind of language of the revolution alongside this kind of village Russian. And it just, uh, I mean, it's incredibly hopeful. It's an incredibly hopeful novel, this idea that we're building this new society. And yet he's very aware of kind of the, the you know, the, the destruction that has to go alongside that. And the destruction is very well rendered. Um, and it stylistically, it just, even in translation is able to do so many things. Um, I mean, Platonov is, is fascinating because uh, Stalin, I mean, we have a, Stalin was a big reader. And so he would sit up after doing his work and he would be reading, you know, the latest literary journals and he'd be writing in, in the margins. And his writing in the margins is hilarious because he's like, you know, this stupid old windbag or like this shithead farmer, like he doesn't know what he's talking about. Or like, what's this style? This isn't how we write. And he, he, I, he didn't, uh, he didn't have Platonov executed. I don't think, I think Platonov died of natural causes. Um, but, you know, I, I, he was, I, I think he was, he was made persona non grata because despite the fact that he was sort of on side as a, as a Soviet, he was, he was just a little too honest about what, about what the Soviet Union was actually doing. And I think what makes it an interesting book to me is that he wants what the Soviet Union is building to come to fruition. Right, but he can't not see what has to be done for that to happen in terms of uprooting people from traditional ways of life and so on and so forth. And I find that a very sympathetic, um, very sympathetic angle to take, especially with these kind of like these things that have become myths. You know, like the collectivization of Russia is, is the reason why we can't have, you know, Americans can't have healthcare, or <laughs> we we in England can't have, you know, the trains that run on time because, you know. The, the horrors of the Soviet Union. Um, but I think it's also, I mean, his relationship with Stalin is, is a reminder that sometimes you don't want your politicians to be literary. <laughs> you know, sometimes uh, being ignored is, is better than uh, being attended to. Um, the last one is Invisible Cities, which I, I think if I had to pick a favorite book, it's probably that one. Uh, I don't even know what to say about it. I think it's it's one of these books that does something that is very simple, but just hits me, you know, it's really deep. And the the way that these kind of prose poems about different cities um, that the that Marco Polo is is giving to to Kublai Khan, he's kind of narrating his travels around the Great Khan's empire, and he's writing these short little pieces about different cities. Just find it. So creative and imaginative, and I, I think it's it's something in literature that I have loved for a long time. You know, and as a as, a, as I said earlier, you know, the Arthuriad was really big for me, and I I do think imaginative literature has 
has an important place. You know, sometimes making something up is one of the great pleasures that literature affords us. You know, inventing a city, I guess inventing an underwater organ in my case. Yeah, making things up is fun. It's fun to, it's fun to lie. And literature gives us an opportunity <laughs> to do that effectively. Well, Calvino is always a great way to finish a podcast. Before we wrap it up, do you want to tell us where we can find you online, where we can go and read your read, <laughs> read your brilliant book, uh, <laughs> City of Pigs? Because I really did love it. I think it's a great book. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for having me on. This was a, this was a lot of fun. And like I said, you know, I'm a big listener of the podcast. So um, it was a pleasure to be on the other side of it. Um, I'm on Twitter, uh, A-Y-F-O-R-G-E-T, A-Y-F-O-R-G. Uh, at Twitter, I don't tweet a lot, but, you know, if you want to find me there, I'm there. Um, the book, I mean, I, I, I went into a bookshop here in Sheffield the other day, and I asked them if they had it. And they said, well, sort of. It's in the system. It's been published, but they don't have copies. So I think there's some, some distribution issues. Uh, you should be able to order it. I mean, I, I hate saying on Amazon, but I think for international readers, if you're not, if you don't like eBooks, I mean, eBook is, is probably the easiest way to get it. But um, I mean, Amazon is probably the most likely. I mean, it does have distribution in the UK and the States. So if you go to a, you know, a, a bookstore, you should be able to get a copy. I just don't know how quickly it'll come because the supply chain is all, is all snarled up. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I assume, I don't know. I don't know how someone in Australia would get a hold of it. All right. Well, and you've also got a website, don't you? Yes. Yeah. Andre-Borget.com. Brilliant. I'll stick it in the show notes. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Congratulations on the book and really looking forward to whatever you put out next. Well, thank you very much, Ben. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks once again to Andre Forger. Check out the show notes for all the details. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Beyond Zero Pod, and you can email us at beyondzeropod at gmail.com. We'll be back with the next episode very soon.